I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 59 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is drummer Stan Damaski, who has held down the crazy rhythms of the Feelies for four decades with a stint in Luna in between. The Feelies are a band that values percussion, and Damaski is the anchor. He delivers propulsive, steady beats while Dave Weckerman taps and bangs out all sorts of counterpoints. They're exhilarating to watch and listen to together. These rhythmic textures, combined with Brenda Sauter's melodic bass lines, Bill Million's churning rhythm guitar, and Glenn Mercer's fluid leads, make for one of the most distinct, energizing sounds in rock. In case I didn't mention this enough times in my previous Carol Pop conversation with Mercer, the Feelies are one of my favorite bands. Growing up and living in New Jersey, Domeski is as much of a passionate music fan as he is an accomplished musician. His love of the cowbell on certain singles inspired him to pick up the drumsticks. Seeing the band television at CBGB's at age 16 changed his life. Domeski recalls his early love of the Velvet Underground and what that band's approach taught him. Later, the Feelies opened for Lou Reed solo as well as the reformed Velvet Underground, and Luna toured with Reed as well. What was it like for Domeski to meet his idol? who had a mercurial reputation. How was Reed different on his solo tours and with the Velvets? What was the one time that Domeski saw Reed get ticked off? The Feelies drummer on its first album, 1980's groundbreaking Crazy Rhythms, was Anton Fear, who died shortly after this conversation was recorded. Fear was a powerhouse, and Domeski describes how he filled those shoes. He also takes us through the multiple Feelies spin-off bands that played during the six-year break after Crazy Rhythms. These include The Tripes, Young Woo, and The Willies. The Feelies' wonderful second album, The More Acoustic, The Good Earth, introduced the band's current lineup and was produced with Peter Buck of R.E.M. That same year, 1986, filmmaker Jonathan Demme had the Feelies on screen as the 10-year high school reunion band of Something Wild. The credits listed the Feelies as portraying the Willies. How did they wind up performing David Bowie's fame with Weckerman singing, and what other 1976 songs did they work up but not get to play? Domeski feel about the band's subsequent stint on AM Records? And does he agree with certain complaints about the drum sound on Only Life, their third album? Why did the Feelies wind down after their energetic fourth album, 1991's Time for a Witness? What was it like for Domeski to jump right into another band, Luna? Aside from Domeski's Feelies pedigree, Luna featured singer-guitarist Dean Wareham of Galaxy 500 and bassist Justin Harwood of The Chills, hence it being dubbed an alt-rock supergroup. Elektra released its acclaimed debut album, Luna Park, in 1992. How did that experience compare to Domeski's time in the Feelies? Why was he resistant to being considered a full-time band member? Why was he cut loose after three Luna albums? Was he happy when the Feelies reunited to resume performing and recording albums? The Feelies played just a handful of shows each year, almost all on the East Coast. Two are coming up November 18th and 19th in Jersey City and Atlantic City. At the Jersey City show, the opening band will be, wait for it, the Willies. How does Domeski stay in playing shape? How does the band prepare for these infrequent shows? Are they working up any new material? As you'd expect, Domeski pushes this conversation forward with great style. Please enjoy Stan Domeski on Carol Pop. If there's any band that you that you wanted to sort of have people look back on if they're getting into the feelies, is the Velvet Underground the one? You know, is that like this going back to the source? Um, I, I think from my perspective, the thing I learned from the Velvets was not to overplay, but I, I learned a lot about that from um, the New York Dolls too. When the, the Dolls first album came out, it was it really uh, showed me a lot. I, I learned a lot from Jerry Nolan. The band overall is, is influenced by the Velvets, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones are a lot. The MC5, Modern Lovers, the Stooges a lot. I mean, Bill used to go see the Stooges in the MC5 back years ago. I think Glenn saw the Raw Power Stooges. I don't know if he saw the, the Psychedelic Stooges. I saw the Feelies open for Lou Reed at the Orpheum right. when he was doing uh, the album New York uh, front to back. Mm-hmm. And and then I and then I read uh, that Luna had supported the Velvet Underground, uh, you know, re- reunion European tour 
and something yes, like ninety three. Yeah, we did most of it. We didn't play the Paris shows because they were filming, um, and then they went out to play some shows with opening for or being on the same bill with you. You too, I think, like in Greece and some other countries. We didn't. We weren't on those shows. So, so did you get to know Lou Reed through all of that? Some as much as you could on the New York tour. He was really nice. He seemed to be in a very good place or point in his life on the velvet underground tour. The vibe was a lot different. He seemed like he had split with his then wife, Sylvia, but she was tour managing and there seemed to be some weirdness between him and Cal. That that's just, you know, my take on it. Maybe I'm wrong. Then Luna also did set the, the set, the twilight reeling tour. And that's by the oh. time he was, by then he was with Laurie Anderson. He was, he seemed to be in a pretty good mood. Um, you, in general, he was always very nice to us. I mean, I, I played in bands that emulate his music. So how can he not be? I mean, was it, was it a thrill for you to just be sharing the stage with him after you'd been sort of growing up listening to him so much? It was great. It was some, one of those things where, you know, I never thought I'd get there, but I always thought I would get there, you know? I mean, he does have that reputation as one of those, you know, don't meet your heroes kind of guys, because he's not like known as the the warmest, fuzziest person. I met him once at a, I think it was like an Oscar party or something. He was perfectly nice, but seemed maybe a surprise that I'd walked up to him. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like he's someone who was like necessarily easy to get to know or anything, but the music is the music. He was always very nice to me, except for one time when me and the tour, our tour manager, we're watching the Velvet Underground sound check, I think in London. And after they stopped the song, he pointed at us and said, what are you guys doing here? And uh, it was quite embarrassing because mm. um, on the New York tour, we used to watch them sound check all the time, but right. it was different circumstances. And uh, we just, the, the tour manager and I just kind of like, you know, creeped away and hoped that he wouldn't beat us up. <laughs> Did he ever say anything about any of your Velvet covers? Uh, he was he was very happy with them. There's a CD compilation where he actually mentions the what goes on. Uh, it's it's a Lou through the years CD compilation that came out probably in '90 or so. Two CDs, and then there's an interview at the end of it, and where he mentions the what goes on cover. He hadn't heard it, but he was looking forward to hearing it. But again, you know, we emulated his music, so. How could he not like us? Right. No, <laughs> absolutely. Like, when did you first pick up the drums and, you know, how did you start playing? I guess it was probably in 1969. I was, it was middle of third grade and they had the introduction of possible band instruments you could play. They had, I remember they had like a, a poster with all the, the instruments and the, you know, I saw the snare drum. I was pretty taken by that. Then they had a, junior band concert in the junior high school and i was like pretty taken by that whole experience and um i just always liked music from an early pretty early age uh my my dad played accordion he claimed but he never i, I never saw him play it and he just said he didn't like to play it anymore because his parents used to make him play it when uh people would come over um, so it's kind of a musical household, not that anyone played, but we were always listening to music in the car and we had record players, et cetera. I think I got my first drum set in 1970. My parents got divorced around that time and I kept on harping on them to, uh, to my mom to get me a drum set. And she finally, uh, you know, she, she felt bad about what, everything that was going on. So as con kind of a consolation prize, I got a drum set. Um, you know, it was a beginner's drum set and, um, I took lessons probably for like six months, not right away, but it got me going. Then that music store closed. So I just kept on working on things by myself and then eventually started taking lessons again and just always listening to music and, uh, teaching. I taught myself a lot of stuff. But then, um, you know, I took lessons on and off, participated in school band as much as I could. Once it got to like junior year in high school, I was already playing in cover bands and we would go and play like high schools down the shore on the weekend. So I wasn't able to to march. They uh, we had a very small high school concert marching band and 
if you wanted to be in band, you had to march. And I really hated marching because of uh, the whole football sports thing at that time. I'm sorry, you grew up in New Jersey? I grew up in mostly, I was born in Jersey City. I grew up mostly in Lynnhurst, which is right by the Meadowlands. We lived in West Patterson for a couple of years in the middle of the 60s as well. Basically, I've lived within like a 15 mile radius my entire life. So, And what was it about the drums that made you want to do that instead of picking up a guitar or bass or something? I was real torn between guitar and drums, but uh, mostly it was the cowbell at the beginning of Honky Tonk Woman and huh. Spinning Wheel and Down on the Corner that made me want to play uh, drums. So you had that sort of percussion in your mind right from the beginning, too. So that's yeah, that it's, was... it's just the thing that appealed to me the most. Uh, I was real close to playing guitar, but um, it seemed like uh, I'd be able to pick up drums easier. You can get started on drums a lot easier, I feel. Is there something that, that you feel like drummers have in common in general? Like, are, are you guys, I don't know, like a, a club of musicians as opposed to something else? Uh, not really. <laughs> just you know attracted to that particular instrument you know I, I get along with most most drummers i i meet and, and stuff like that it's not like i don't get along with people like that in college it, it was weird because i went to um to college for music education although I, I didn't end up getting my teaching degree at the end i was kind of the odd man out there because i i went into college i guess in the fall of 78 and punk rock was still pretty big and I was really into punk rock and nobody was into punk rock. You know, when I would talk about the sex pistols people would think I was crazy. Um, nobody knew who television was. Um, nobody knew, you know, if you talked about the Ramones, oh, those guys can't play. People were still very much into either straightforward jazz, which is great. A lot of it was prog rock. People were really into like, yes. Right. And, uh, stuff like that. I mean, I love King Crimson. I like some Yes music, but it was exactly what I didn't want to be be listening to. Were you going to CBGBs and seeing, you know, television and Blondie and I Ramones? saw my friend Michael Carlucci, who was from Lynnhurst. He was three and a half years older than me. I was playing in bands, and he was playing in bands. And I was walking down the street one day in in Lynnhurst. I guess I was probably around fifteen. He drove. He was driving by that age. He pulls over in his Camaro and confronts me on how did you get the Velvet Underground's third album before I did? And uh, from there, there on, we started uh, having a really uh, pretty close friendship based on music. Um, I guess like a year or two later, probably a year later in 77, he, uh, I was playing, I started playing with him in bands and then uh, he, I knew who television was because you had cream magazine back then. And I was always getting that and waiting for what's the next thing, what's going to be, you know, happening. So anyway, I knew who television was. I didn't have little Johnny jewel yet, but I think I may have had the first album and he just pulled over. He just called me one day and said, Hey, you want to go see television? And, uh, I saw television when I was 16 at CBGB's it was May of 77 and it was, pretty uh, a pretty big life-changing experience i felt i didn't go to cbgb's that much after that um because i was still young and the drinking age was 20 21 i mean i had my brother's id with me but they, they didn't proof us at uh cbgb's um i went to con more regular concerts and the bottom line didn't proof either i got into the bottom line pretty easily so i mean i saw lou at the bottom line a bunch of times pretty early on what was it about television that blew your mind it was just new. And I mean, the drummer was great, you know, oh, yeah. even though he was kind of like a fusionist drummer, but you know, he, he totally fit, fit the music. Uh, it was just a four piece band, two guitars, bass and drums, you know, back then in New Jersey, Springsteen was so big and it just seemed like we really weren't playing our own music in the various bands I was in. We were playing cover songs and it was really hard to sound like Springsteen when you had like, you know, a four or five piece band. Not that we were playing television songs, but it was a lot easier to play like the Rolling Stones or, you know, guitar based music rather than, you know, sound like Bruce. The, the two bands where I've seen the guitarists spend the most, take the most care in making sure their instruments are tuned are television and the feelies. <laughs> uh, we're still kind of out of tune sometimes, I think. But Were you aware of uh, the feelies at that time? And did you, you know, like when Crazy Rhythms came out, was that an album you were up on? 
Well, I remember looking at ads for CBGBs and seeing their name and, and thinking, boy, that's kind of a silly name. Um, so I really didn't hear anything about them until there was an article in the New York rocker. Basically I went from like circus magazine to cream magazine to New York rocker, as far as my main sources of new music and information on, uh, what was going on. And I remember there was, I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was called up and down with the feelies. It was written by Glenn Morrow, the guy who's the head of bar none. And it was in the individuals. He, he wrote it under a pen name, but I got to check that out. I have not read that. I saw that and I was like, well, these guys are live about five miles from where I live. It had a picture of them outside the back of Bill's house at that time. And it looked like the back of my house. Um, and then, you know, it was all this talk about drums, percussion and, you know, twangy guitars and kind of like a cross between the Avengers and the uh, and, and uh, the Velvet Underground. I worked in a, a store in Manhattan, occasionally a record store. And when it came out, I, actually, I got the uh, original love. Everybody's got something to hide 45 first. And I was like, well, this is something I need to keep listening to. When the record came out, I, I got a copy of the U.S. copy of the of the record which is kind of harder to find and i was just pretty blown away then um I, first time i went to see him uh, was at hurrah on uh, september 11th of 1980 and uh, i was just it was it's just really great i was playing in original bands at maxwell's and wherever else we could get a show because it wasn't always we were pretty terrible so it wasn't easy <laughs> to get shows but steve Allen was always very supportive of new uh, bands and young musicians. And I remember him mentioning, oh, Anton's leaving the Feelies. And I was like, oh, can you hook me up and get me an audition? And he did. I had Keith Denunzio called me like a couple of days later and I went down and uh, played with them. And uh, that was the beginning. That was, I guess that would be the summer of 1981. Huh. So that was pretty early then. Uh, and yeah, I was it, 20 years old when I first went to play with them. Yeah, I was going to say, because you said you were born in 1960. So did they hire you in, in 81 then? And were they sort of... Nah, the, you know, they were kind of in flux at that point. It seemed like, I can't remember, one of them didn't want to play without having a lot of new songs and the other did. I can't remember who it was or what the exact circumstances were. But we started playing some of the newer stuff, which was like the Willie stuff. I don't know if we played the obedient Adam right away, but they did have that in, in their set. The last few times I saw him, I saw him three times with Anton at that point. I saw them September 11th, 1980. Then right after John Lennon got shot, I saw him like the, the weekend after at Irving Plaza. And then I guess like in this, Late winter I, uh, the, of 1981 was the last time I saw them in, in, in Manhattan. Then they were playing some of their more experimental music, which some of it was used in Smithereens. And uh, so we started playing some of that stuff. And I guess we only had like three rehearsals with Keith at that point. And then there was a long break. And then I guess the spring of 82, Bill called me out of the blue and said, hey, you want to do some playing? But it was pretty much as the willies. You have to explain to me the whole willies. It's complica complicated. The willies, Sorry. the tripes, <laughs> Young Woo. I mean, Young Woo, I know, has Dave Weckerman out front. Right. But like you got the Willies, the Tripes and Young Woo, you know, all these bands happening. And before then the Feelies recorded the next band. So, A, I want you to explain to me, like, sort of how these things happened and what order. And also, did everyone look at these bands like this is a side band or was the Tripes like a band band? And, you know, and then but then the Feelies became more important or was it always like, oh, we have these side projects, but the main thing is still the Feelies. Well, the Tripes were a band before. I guess they started around 1980, maybe, but they didn't have Glenn at all. Now, you know, the tripes, John and Tony are my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, right? I did not know that. They are. Um, so I guess when I was first going down to play with the Feelies the, slash the Willies, I guess the tribes were around, but the original tribes were four people. 
John, Tony, Mark Francia, and L. Bruce Kellerman. Then I guess they expanded. They were friends. I actually, I live in the house that my brother-in-law grew up in. Um, so they knew Glenn, even though they didn't go to high school with Glenn. John and Tony went to high school with Bill. I think he was a year older or two years. Mark from the Tribes went to school throughout his entire school career with Bill's wife. So they've known each other a long time. Anyway, um, I guess they were playing as a four piece. Then they invited Glenn to play. He was originally playing drums. And when I say drums, it wasn't drum set. It was like a floor tom and a snare and percussion. Then I guess eventually Glenn decided to move to guitar and the Feelies weren't really playing. The Willies were kind of getting going at this point and they got Dave in on drums. Um, all right. So who's in the Willies? I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep the Willies started with Bill, Glenn, Dave, and me, but er, pretty early on, Anton would just show up and play. He didn't always come to rehearsals. He didn't play with us at folk city. We did a, a show pretty early on at folk city, but we played the first show was a New York rocker benefit at um, Maxwell's and he just showed up and played. Then we played Danceteria in New York, maybe the next year. I'm, I'm, I'm not real sure, but no, I, actually within a few months and he didn't, he just showed up for that. Um, then eventually the Willies, Brenda joined the Willies and we started playing the stuff on the good earth. And that's how we eventually morphed back to the feelies, which was in 1984 with the tripes uh in 1983 dave became somewhat unreliable for various reasons uh he felt he was fine but he was he was a bit of a party boy at that point and he was you know i think they looked at me as like i had better equipment i wouldn't say i play better than dave but i have more he's got wild abandonment i have controlled tight assness <laughs> you put it that way. Yeah, I was more dependable and I had better equipment. And, you know, I, I really didn't want to join the tribes, but I got, kind of got told you're joining the tribes. So I did. Then Brenda joined the tribes. Brenda actually was introduced to the band by my wife. Um, her friend knew Brenda from art school. Brenda Sauter, the basses, just for anyone. Who yes, Brenda. Keeping score. And so she came down. I, I think she actually played with them before I played with them. She sat in with them. They used to play. Um, every Sunday at a local bar called the Peanut Gallery here, here in Heldens, no longer there. And then after I joined, they decided that they wanted to add a bass player. So Brenda was asked to join on a full-time basis. Not too long after that, L. Bruce decided he didn't want to be in the band because he felt it was he was being criticized too much, you know, some stupid bad stuff. That's when Brendan, basically Brenda, Tony, and John started doing most of the vocals. We would play shows together as the Willies and the, and the Tripes. Uh, Young Wu was Dave, just started writing his own songs. He actually released a 45 under his own name, I think in 1980, of Sure Leave and a song called Out of Baby's Reach. Out of Baby's Reach is used in Smithereens briefly, where mm. they make a disparaging remark about it while they're in a club or something like that. But he had some songs. They did some demos. And then um, when they would play live shows, they asked me to play drums because he was playing guitar back then. Um, it would usually be me, Dave, again, just the four of us. Sometimes the tribe would be Young Wu also. It really depended on the evening and situation. What was but, the concept uh, of the Willies? Like what distinguished the Willies from the Feelies? Was it, were there more covers? Was it more experimental? It was, at first it was definitely more like instrumental music, utilizing backing tapes and kind of like more unusual sounds. Um, it just seemed like they didn't have a lot of new Feely songs. So they just did this other thing on the side and uh, until more Feely songs were written, which eventually became the good earth. When you saw them, the feelies in 1980, um, was it just the four of them? Like, how did they do all those percussion parts? No, it was uh, fine. I, they always, they almost always had a, a percussion player. It, I think initially it was Glenn's brother, Bob. Okay. And there was this guy, Charlie Beasley, who was a really good friend of Anton's, but eventually Dave was the original drummer in the feelies when they started in 76. Um, they had a different bass player. Who's, pretty much lost. I, I think Bill tried to track him down, kind of knows where he is, but I don't know if he ever made contact with him. 
so they had this that formation that uh, version of the band in 76 and then i guess they went out through 77 and dave went on a trip to england in 77 in the summer of 77 he actually saw like the punk rock festival with the pistols and susie and the banshees at the 100 club i guess it was i think and when he got back he called up glenn and uh was informed that they had re- he had been replaced by the the Nunzio brothers Keith and Vinny. Um, they're the version of the band that play on the Orc. I was at that 40th anniversary show in uh, Maplewood, so right, I think right. they, they came back and did some of that there. It was like yeah. all the different lineups, except I guess Anton Fear didn't play. But no, um, he had. I think he had fallen and hurt his hand and wasn't able to play. And now I don't think he plays anymore. Hmm. I'm not sure if they started using a percussionist with Vinny, but I know they were doing raised eyebrows and they had like the floor Tom. Cause there's a photo of them at, I think at Max's with a uh, Keith with a floor Tom in front of them. When they got, they got Anton, they definitely had uh, a percussionist and eventually it became Dave. And Glenn had told me that the first song written for the next Feelies album after crazy rhythms, uh, the first one written was when company comes and they were doing that when I saw them in, um, I don't know if they did it at hurrah, but I'm pretty sure they did it at the Irving Plaza show and the show I saw after that. If I remember correctly, it was a slightly different version of it, but it's, it's also the first recording I ever did with them. Um, Glenn, Bill and I did a demo of it in, in, uh, at, at Bill's old house pretty early on. Right. This is, it's just this lush, beautiful acoustic song. That's that definitely is a different direction from where crazy rhythms was going. Well, uh, you know, one of the things I really like about the the Good Earth is that it was not Crazy Rhythms Part Two, and not at all. But I think it still had enough uh, elements of the previous music that uh, it was still the band. So I would agree. Yeah, even though it's just Bill and Glenn and three three different people, but hired uh, hands. <laughs> <laughs> so the five of you from the Feelies were in the Tripes, and most of you were in the Willies. I, I mean, everyone but Brenda was in the Willies, it sounds like. But initially, so- initially, it was just the four of us. And then, like I said, Anton would show up every now and then. Sometimes we'd ask T- Tony to play some. Uh, she played like some woodwind parts and sang a little bit. Not all the time, though. I think that was only at the one dance interior show. Was there just some point when Glenn and Bill said, okay, we're the feelies again and you know, put on? Yeah, your I think when it's when they had enough songs, basically, for the good earth, I guess it was in 1984. Brenda was in the band already. We had at least I'd say probably like four of the good earth songs that we were playing. And we used to play, play like the high road as an instrumental. Actually, I've got a recording of it and I was been going through stuff because we're going to be doing a Willie set opening for ourselves, but we played an eating club or a food club at Princeton university. That was in the spring of 84. Right after that we played, well, not right after that, but shortly after that in the summer of 84, we played our first show back under the name, the feelies. And then at the end of the summer, we went on a U.S. tour as the feelies with the, the, the good earth band version of the band. And you're playing some of that, some of that music uh, before you we were playing the it. crazy rhythms and as much of the, the good earth songs that he, he had written by that point. What are your sort of favorite moments looking back on, or, or did, do they tend to be you being on stage or figuring out stuff in the studio? We didn't figure a whole lot. Well, as far as the drum parts went, not a lot was done and figured out in the studio. You're just playing it. it by most of it was done beforehand. Um, I, I always enjoyed, we used to jam a lot and that was always fun. Um, the live shows were always fun. And they, I mean, I still enjoy playing live, live with my friends. So what was the creative process like when they bring in a song, let's say slipping into something, how did that get worked out with the band? Would they, was there a demo first? Would they just sort of play it for you with Glenn or Glenn and Bill play it for you? How did you work out all the parts? Uh, well, with slipping, that was a song from the uh, Vinny and Keith days. Um, I had, a I had somehow come across, actually, I think band friend, Bob Nickus, he went to college with Glenn. 
he had a live recording of them from CBGB's and he loaned it to me. And I remember mentioning it to the band and I guess it, you know, kind of like rang a bell with them. Like, Oh yeah, I remember that song. And they listened to it. And, uh, I basically, I played with Vinnie played on it, you know, as far as I could tell, I mean, our version's a little bit different, but pretty much it's the same version that they played live that one. They didn't record back then. So, um, with some songs, especially nowadays, Glenn or Bill have demos and, um, Glenn will sometimes play drum set parts and either I'll play what he played or, or I'll play what I think is more appropriate. I mean, the songs are pretty simple. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to come up with anything that doesn't fit, fit the song or try not. I usually won't come up, up with anything that won't fit the song. Um, but you know, they can be very specific about what they want in the drum parts. A lot of times I just, if there's nothing there yet, I play what I think will fit and they'll say, Oh, that's okay. Okay. Change that, you know, maybe do this, but, uh, neither of them write drum music. So it's not like the handy charts or anything like that. Right. Well, and then will you and Dave work out kind of the, the interplay between the percussion and the drums? A lot of times that will be Glenn or Bill telling Dave what to play. We, yeah, we really Glenn, don't work the parts out ourselves. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Glenn had said that basically crazy rhythms, it sounded like he and Bill were doing, most of the percussion overdubs themselves. So it's, they had, it seems like that's the case. Um, Anton, from what they told me, Anton only wanted to play the drum set parts and then was out of there. Um, he was, you know, a pretty hot commodity back then. He was playing with a lot of different people. He was resume back then. was quite impressive. Dave wasn't a member of the band at that point. I think, although he's thanked on the record, he re relates a story where, you know, they called him up at like, you know, 11 o'clock at night or something and said, Hey, come on in and, you know, play some percussion for us. And he was like, Oh, that's too late to come in, you know, and didn't go. So he's not on the record at all. Uh, from what I understand, uh, it's mostly Glenn and Bill who played a percussion on that record. So when you guys are playing, whether it's live or in the studio, but certainly I see, I see it more live. Is it fun to have someone else there just devoted just to percussion and the two of you are kind of this rhythm section? I mean, aside from Brenda, obviously, but, <laughs> but that it's like the two of you as opposed to just you sort of carrying the whole thing? No, it's it. That's one of the best things about the band is being able to play with a percussionist, uh, I think. You wound up playing in the movie something wild and to continue yeah. our to continue our our theme of confusing names you're credited as the willies even though it's the it's the feelies credited as the willies playing uh fame and then some feely stuff uh in the high school reunion scene was that I, fun it, oh it was great i mean i was at that point i i was working a day job delivering auto parts and i remember we got the call and they were like you know, can you take off from work to, we, we, you know, Jonathan Demi wants us to be in a movie. And I, frankly, I would have quit the job just to go do that. Um, my boss at the time thought I was kind of like, you know, telling them a story, but I wasn't. Uh, they flew us down. It was, re, uh, it was filmed outside of Tallahassee. Um, we were treated really well. It was, it was just a wonderful experience all around. Did, was it was a Jonathan Demi's idea to have you guys playing fame during that scene? It was, I guess it was a 1976 high school reunion. So, or I, I think it was, we actually learned the theme from Rocky as an instrumental. Well, it wasn't instrumental. Oh, we learned that, that in like a, a punk rock version. We learned take it to the limit by the Eagles. Dave sang. <laughs> they couldn't, couldn't get the rights to either of those songs. So I guess they got the rights to, uh, fame and, uh, Till the next teardrop falls and uh then we did i'm a believer and we also played loveless love going out of the scene i think did you play fame in your own shows after that or was that just the one-off uh, just with one young will we would do it since we made dave sing it what do you think of the movie when it finally came out i I'm, i really enjoy it i refer to it as my sun ride on sunset strip so so what was your feeling and the feeling of the band at that time so so the good earth has come out um you know it's gotten great reviews and you know it's on an independent label built peter buck from rem produced it and got some publicity co-produced co-produced co yeah i know <laughs> and, it's, and it's not and, and the way glenn tells it it was more like him putting his name on it to help it out than actually well, he going. was there for a lot of it but he was also uh, a lot of times he seemed like he was a uh, kind of partied out because he would stay down by steve's 
at Maxwell's and, you know, REM was pretty big in those days and, you know, people would hang out with them and stuff. I mean, they had their whole idea of what they wanted and, you know, they would bounce ideas from what I remember, they would bounce ideas off of him and, you know, he would make suggestions like that. Um, he, he was a really nice guy and everybody in REM were really nice and very supportive of us. Um, I wasn't there for all of it. I mean, obviously I was there for the basic tracks, which were done really fast. Uh, I they never spent much time doing the drums. It always had to be done really as fast as possible. And I was there for some of the mixing, but um, I, I had a full-time job back then too. So, you know, I couldn't, I wasn't always able to be there. Were there was there anything in particular that, that you remember Peter Buck suggesting and, you know, like any sort of different tweak on any of the songs? No, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, I'm sure he did, but it's also, you know, it was recorded. I think we started recording that on New Year's Day of 1986. So it's, it's quite some time ago. Uh, he was there most of the time. I mean, I remember having to pick him up and drive him back to, to Maxwell's. So that's one of the things I remember the most, actually. And then you guys got signed to A&M and did uh, Only Life. Mm-hmm. How, how different was that experience of recording uh, that album? Um, we did the basic tracks at the power station, which was a pretty big, you know, studio in New York. So again, we did the drums as fast as possible. And, uh, it was, you know, it was weird seeing how expensive it was, um, to record at a, a studio like that. I mean, the assistant engineer would send out for a pack of cigarettes and we get charged to our studio bill, things like that. Um, but it was a great studio and, and the gentleman who co-produced that record and engineered it, Steve Rinkoff was great. Then we did the overdubs and the mixing. Well, the overdubs were done at Mixolydian, which was our local studio of choice with um, the gentleman who owned it was Don Sternecker. Actually, he still owns a version of it. It's just that it's out by the Delaware Water Gap now. It's not in Boonton, which is in New Jersey, pretty close to where I live. Um, so we did all those. And then I can't remember. Uh, actually, they mixed part of it, most of it at the power station. And I guess it was like in the early days of autom- automated computerized mixing. And it was kind of took a long time. So I wasn't there for a lot of that. I really didn't want to. There was no reason to be. I mean, I remember Glenn and Bill would just like go there and watch TV. Steve would prepare a mix for them. They'd go in and listen to it and say, do this, do that, change this. And then he'd have to, you know, redo it and it just seemed like it took a really long time to do that stuff back then i think it's a lot better nowadays was was a creative process for the band pretty much the same in the way that uh glenn and bill would bring in songs and you guys would work them out ahead of time oh uh, yeah um the one song that we all kind of came together on was uh too far gone we started we went and rehearsed on the set of something wild on the one day off they allowed us to go onto the set and uh bill started playing a guitar riff and that's how that song kind of came about um others you know like higher ground uh, glenn had a demo of uh only life he had a demo of uh, it was just him and a, a drum machine were you happy with what that album sounded like i thought it's you know i mean there was a social media post recently uh, about about the record i guess because it just was the anniversary of its release maybe and um i thought it sounded professional you know i don't think it sounds overproduced or anything like that but other band members aren't so happy with the way it sounds the drums are louder and you, uh glenn's vocals are, are higher i think that's one of the bigger things i don't think the drums sound as processed as other band members may feel but you know that's their opinion and this is mine right and you're the drummer so the drums are louder <laughs> that's good that's right what was the feeling when that was coming out and you're on a major label? Did, did it feel like there was extra pressure on you? Was it exciting because you thought, Oh, we're, you know, going up the ladder and that sort of thing. Well, I felt like I had achieved something by that point, you know, and actually that was basically when my wife and I got married. Um, it's not like we wouldn't have gotten married if we wouldn't have gotten signed to a major label, but uh, I felt like, you know, this enables us to move forward um, it's kind of a weird way of putting it, I guess, but it, it seemed like an accomplishment. And, you know, I, I wasn't just, you know, when people would say, Oh, what do you do? Uh, you know, I'm a musician, but when you're on a major label back then, I think it meant more. Right. 
it's interesting. Like people I've talked to for like three of these recent episodes, all their major label experiences were all with AM in the eighties. At some point I, I, cause Steve Goulding was with the Mekons and they were on AM. Uh, and they, they, their right. album rock and roll came out in 89 and, and you know, the dream syndicate and Steve Wynn, they were on AM earlier. Right. None of them end up that happy with AM, but like AM had good taste in these bands they were signing. So I give them that. It was a bit of a problem and probably maybe it still is where people come and go at record labels. Um, we had people working our record and then, you know, they either got fired or just left for another reason. I, I, I can't remember, but I think something happened between the, the third and the fourth record to A&M. I can't remember if they got sold or there was some just policy change. And, uh, so I remember Bill telling me, you should really pay attention to this. This, this is what's happening. You know? And I was like, oh, well, not much we can do. We're kind of stuck here. And, uh, it did seem like a very big difference between the, the first A&M record and the second A&M record, as far as the attention we were given. And I remember they really wanted us to basically like tour forever. And Glenn said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I thought we toured more than enough. So was there still that feeling of optimism of being on that major label at that point, or were things already kind of, you know, was the mood a little shakier by then? For only life, you know, we seem to reach our peak as far as sales went. Um, with time for witness, again, it seemed like there was some sort of change at A and M, which I can't remember exactly what it was at that time. Also, certain band members kind of made it clear that if you know, if this one didn't do really well, that was going to be it. And I, I was like, all right, you know, whatever, whatever happens, you know, hopefully it will turn out for the best, but. Uh, it did not. Uh, well, that we definitely puts more pressure on it. Yeah. And we stopped playing for 17 years and uh, it was the the end of the band. We never officially broke up, I don't think, but uh, we stopped playing for 17 years. It just it just seems like the economics screw up so much great music, um, and yeah, and, especially you know, when the labels are involved. We're family people. Dave's the only one that doesn't have a family. And um Unless you're making a lot of money, uh, you can't support a family, you know, and, and back then also going on tour would separate you so much from your family because there wasn't this, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't cell phones. If you called home from Europe, it would cost you 50 bucks, which back then, you know, was a lot of money. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand how, like, it's hard to be a working musician. Um, you know, even if you're on a major label and, you know, you could walk into, you know, the tower records back then and say, look, there's me. It's that didn't mean that, uh, you were, you know, in great shape and rich and everything. Yeah. And, uh, also not everyone wanted to be professional musicians. I, I didn't have a problem with it. And, um, I always approached playing music as it's a lot of work. I mean, I know you're making art, but in order to do it properly, you have to be prepared. You have to have your equipment ready. You have to show up on time. I've, I've always approached it as work and I still do. And after we get done eat, uh, with this interview, I'm going to eat lunch and then go downstairs in my basement and play for like two hours. And while I enjoy doing it, it's work. And not everyone in the band wanted to think of music that way and still don't. And I think they would disagree with me on this opinion, but uh, that's how I feel about it. When you go down and play for two hours, uh, what are you doing? Are you, are you just playing on your own? Do you put on, you know, music to play along with? Like, how does that, like, I, I don't even know how, you know, you, would well, when I'm preparing for a show, I usually play to recordings of the latest, uh, sets that I may have access to. Like right now I've been playing along to the second set, uh, or, and sometimes the first and second set of a show we did or last November at a place called the colony in Woodstock. It's a pretty good recording and, uh, it's a pretty good show. So basically it's like just going through the physical aspect of getting used to playing the songs and hitting the drums hard and playing at those tempos and seeing if there's something that worked or didn't work, et cetera. Then I usually play uh, the practice pad. I play rudiments on the practice pad for a while. When you go into like these shows coming up, are the set, do you know the set list ahead of time? And is it, you know, similar to what you were doing last November or, you know, is it like, okay, learn this one now also, cause we want to throw this one in. 
we're probably looking at the set that we did at uh, Solid Sound before the, the year before the pandemic. Um, so we'll probably use that as a basis or maybe the Pitchfork set even, which I think was kind of similar to that one anyway. So we're going back and reviewing old tapes and there's probably going to be a couple of new type of instrumental songs too, co- mostly covers, but some of it's uh, just stuff that was never recorded. Um, but there, we have been known to do the same set over and over for a while in, in the past, <laughs> especially like on the 91 tour, uh, the time for a witness tour, we were basically playing the same set every night and I didn't really mind. And it was really up to those. It, it's really up to those guys, this sort of thing, you know, um, it's what they feel. It's, it's their band. They've always dictated uh, what we do. So for the Willie's thing, will there be a Willie set and then one Feely set or will you still still do two? No, we'll, sets? we'll do one. The fir- first set will be the Willie's and then we'll do a, a Feely set. So after Time for Witness and the band broke up without officially breaking up, you joined Luna. What was that experience like and how did it sort of contrast to what you were used to? Well, when I first went down, I guess Dean approached me about playing on their first record in December of 91. And I was reluctant to do it because I kind of had had it with music. But um, on the other hand, it, it was an opportunity being presented and he was he was very nice about it. And uh, he offered to pay me. So I was, I didn't have a, I wouldn't say I didn't have a choice. It seemed like it, something that I, I should do. Then, I mean, the Feelies actually didn't stop playing. We were still talking about playing until like the following year. We were dropped from A&M essentially via fax. And that was kind of the end of that. And then we stopped, we just stopped playing for the 17 years. Um, so I was doing the first record and i wasn't supposed to be the only drummer on the first record they were supposed to use the, their live drummer but it became apparent that uh they didn't really want to use them for whatever reason it was i think part of it again is i was more dependable and i had better equipment and then in this case i could play better than that guy i hate to say it so anyway we they invited me to play on the record I, I wasn't going to play on the whole thing. I think even Fred Marr was talking about, he produced it and he was talking about playing on some of it, but I ended up playing on all of it. Um, then by the time the Feely stopped, they were starting to get offers for tour. They were starting to plan touring and uh, I kind of needed to, to keep working and have it, you know, income. So I ended up uh, touring. And you're on, I think three of their records, right? the first three records i play on plus we did a lot of did a lot of recording so i'm like on bonus tracks ep cuts etc cetera, etc cetera. so so when you're getting hired to play drums on an album at what point do you become a band member as opposed to you know someone who was hired to contribute to well, something i resisted becoming a band member with luna that's for sure but then after a while it was pretty obvious that well, we were uh, a band um Probably somewhere between the uh, first and second record, it was pretty obvious that uh, the lineup was solidified. And how did Dean approach sort of, you know, presenting material and, you know, working with the band dynamics as opposed to, you know, what you were used to with Glenn and Bill and the Feelies? Uh, kind of similar in that um, he uh, would bring down, de- usually give demos, uh, usually like little four track demos. Um, we really didn't work on too much uh, from the start like him just bringing a song to rehearsal or something. Um, and Justin wrote some songs too. And so did Sean eventually. Um, it was usually off of demos, but the big difference was he didn't tell me what to play in general. Sometimes Justin would. And um, sometimes I would just tell him, no, I'm not doing that. You know, at that point I didn't, you know, even though he made it clear that, you know, he wanted to have a lot of input on the drums from, from the get go. I kind of didn't listen to him too much, but, uh, on the other hand, he didn't really tell me what to do very often. And if he did, it was something that made sense anyway. I, I came up with most of my parts. Actually, in the first record, a lot of that music, Dean had demoed with a drummer, various drummers. Some of it was uh, Hamish Kilgore played on some of this, some of the stuff. Some of it was Jimmy Chambers from uh, 
early version of a Mercury Rev. And I'd just take their what they played and do my version of it, which varied. Sometimes it was pretty much what they did. Sometimes it was a little bit different. Did you enjoy this period of being in that band? Yes and no. I was tired of being uh, in a band by that point and pretty disgusted with the uh, the music industry and how uh, I would go to like, I remember going to the photo shoot for the second record and thinking to myself, because they were shooting the cover before I got out there and thinking, boy, these people are all making more money than I am doing what they do than I am making recording the record. Uh, so I don't want to sound bitter though, Mark, <laughs> everybody deserves to get paid. Okay. That's, right. that's for sure. But, um, you know, I, I, I basically felt like I had put so much effort into music that to just stop after the feelies was probably not the best idea. If I would have had like a good job offer at that point, I probably would have taken it and just, you know, gotten out of music, but, uh, I, I really didn't, I really didn't know what to do at that point. So when Dean called, it just seemed to make sense. So was that gig supporting you well, or was that part of the problem is that you're, so you're working really hard as a drummer and you're still like, why is, you know, why is this still, you know, a struggle after all this? It was better in that, um, I got, um, I was putting on retainer. Um, we played more, so there was more money from touring, but I, I didn't make that much money and I did certainly didn't make it enough to really keep doing it. And that's eventually why I was let go too. So, so did they let you go or did you just leave? No, they fired me. Why? Lack of, you know, I could cite specific examples, but a lot of it was just lack of success. If we would have sold some more records, I'd probably still be in the band. Since I was an employee of the band, Dean was the only one who signed to Electra. Um, we had to negotiate each record, each tour, and I think he, they got kind of tired of that and, I, uh, and of uh, me dictating that, well, I'm not willing to do that they were more than willing to go out and tour a real lot. And I was to a certain degree and we certainly worked a lot. Um, but specifically it came down to, they wanted to do the next record with the gentleman who engineered, who mixed uh, the third record. And I was reluctant to do so for various reasons. I felt we should either do it ourselves, which was not really a realistic thing or we should get someone who was bigger and would, you know, make a name for the record. And that wasn't realistic either. Cause no one seemed to be no big name producer seemed to be interested. Um, then they wanted to go and play a festival in Spain. And I was basically told it would be, I would just get per diems and I refused. And that was the, uh, the final straw. Huh? I mean, being an employee of a band isn't the same as being in a band, is it? Or is that how things work? I don't know if they really felt I was an employee of the band, but I was. And, uh, and uh, you know, I did it for money. I did it to, uh, and I had to negotiate each uh, thing we did. Uh, overall, I mean, I think they got the better end of everything, but uh, maybe they wouldn't agree. <laughs> but that's, that's different how it was set up with the feelings, I would imagine. Yeah, but it was always, with the feelings, it was always made clear that it was Glenn and Bill's band and they made the rules and et cetera, et cetera. But it I've didn't. always been the side man, Mark. <laughs> Give her the drummer some. Come on. <laughs> I, it, it's it's what I do. You know, were you were you happy when Glenn and Bill got the feelings back together? Uh, sure. It was uh, it gave it gave some closure, obviously, because, you know, we had never really broken up. And, you know, it was not under the best circumstances that the band stopped playing. Um, I felt like we had put so much effort into it and got very little back. And, uh, I kind of feel uh, with my experience with Luna too, I, I kind of feel that way. I put a lot into it and didn't get that much back. Although I think I'm going to start getting a bit more back with Luna. Um, and maybe the feelings too. Well, I can't really complain about the feelings because, uh, even though I don't get a, a split of the publishing money with the feelings, it's been, uh, I've gotten money from the records that we put out, on smaller labels like from coyote recordings and bar none has been great with stuff with AM, I don't know if we'll ever get anything because I don't think anything's real clear about how we were signed to them. Um, apparently a lot of big record companies are going to be doing this, um, legacy artist thing. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, 
if you haven't gotten any advance money from certain big labels for like 20 years, they're going to start just giving you your forgiving all debt. I'm not sure how much debt the Feelies had with A&M, but with Electra, they claimed like an incredible amount. And it was all on Dean, but that means they would have to recoup that money before they'd start giving, you know, paying you out. And apparently starting, I think in April, we're going to be seeing more money from like, if, if a Luna song gets uh, used in a TV commercial, we'll see more money. If it gets used in a TV show or a movie, et cetera, we're going to start seeing more money from that sort of thing. Yeah. That record company debt thing always struck me as kind of evil. You know, yeah. you, you, you put out a book and you get an advance. You don't owe the book company what you didn't earn back for like the rest of your life. And nobody was charging and nobody was charging as far as I know, you know, like, you know, cigarettes for the assistant, uh, some, <laughs> something or other to, uh, you know, the account. With the feelies, I don't think we really use that much money. Um, I think we were all pretty careful about things with uh, Luna. It seemed like they advanced a lot of money and gave tours, much more tour support, et cetera. And um, uh, the, the, the amount of money they told Dean that he owed them was astronomical. And um, I think probably not true, uh, but um, apparently it's going to be forgiven soon. And uh, I'm a legacy artist soon. There you go. Are you on good terms <laughs> with Dean now? Yeah. Again, if we would have sold more records back then, you know, I don't think uh, I, I'd still be playing in the band probably, but uh, we didn't sell that many records. When you got back together with the Feelies, I saw you at Millennium Park and that was right. exciting. And uh, and you guys recorded uh, here before um, and then later did in between. Did it, mm -hmm. did it feel like you were picking up where you left off or did it feel like sort of a different band or the same band, but older? Like, how did that work? Same band. What did you think of uh, here before and in between? I don't think there are any real changes and uh, they just have a lot of nice songs on them. A lot of nice melodies. Are you excited when you hear a new feely song you get to do? Uh, I don't know if I'd say excited as much as, you know, I'm happy about it and interested in doing it. You know, excited is, you know, something I used to feel when I was 20 years old, going down to Bill's basement to play with guys who were well-established and older than me. Do you have a sense now just of, you know, because the Feelies have been around for 40 something years, you know, you started playing with them, you know, a long time ago. Do you have a sense that their sort of their body of work has become solidified in a way where it's like, yeah, this is, uh, you know, we might not have realized it at the time, but this is really lasting stuff that actually made a big impact on music. I think uh, it's, it's, it's good music as far as, you know, it's, impact on other bands i guess crazy rhythm seemed to have you know a pretty big impact on certain bands like rem um uh, as far as like my contribution or anything that nah, i don't i don't feel like i've had a big impact on anything but i don't mind do you have a favorite of those albums it's probably the good earth because it's the first one it was my first full-length record and uh it was the beginning of uh i basically started dating my wife in 1985 late 1985 and uh we moved in together in the summer of 86 um and then we went on tour it's great driving music too it's like if you're driving through like fields in Iowa or something like that, you uh, crank that up. It's it's fantastic. The cover photo, so. the cover photo was taken in a cornfield in Illinois. Oh, in Illinois, okay. Uh, in a, on our 1984 tour. Ah, I should go find that cornfield. Probably looks like a lot of other cornfields. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea other than it was in Illinois. I do remember that. Well, thank you so much, Stan. It's great to talk to you. I, I've always enjoyed talking to you and seeing you at shows, but I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to go deeper into all of this stuff here. Thank you, Mark. That's all for episode 59 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Stan Domeski for taking us through his great work with the Feelies and Luna. The Feelies are playing rare shows Friday, November 18th at White Eagle Hall in Jersey City and Saturday, November 19th at Anchor Rock Club in Atlantic City, both in New Jersey. Tickets can be bought through thefeeliesweb.com. And if you can get yourself there, you really should. You also can order the Feelies albums at thefeeliesweb.com and through Bar None Records. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who has a real cool time taking this podcast to higher ground. 
I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter at Caro Popcast. And you can follow me there as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Yes, we're still there. Also visit the Caro Pop website, caropop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Caro Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tell your friends. And tune in again next week for another Caro Pop conversation. Thanks.